0: Hey everyone, welcome back to the Echelon Podcast, where you either get it or maybe you don't. I'm your host, Adam Zimmerman, coming to you from the great state of Colorado. Uh, stoked to have another awesome guest on the mic, but first let me introduce uh, James McKay, my co-host. James, welcome back.
1: Thank you, Adam. Always a pleasure being back.
0: Yeah, man. Uh, looks like it's um, not a bad weekend out. Are you gonna ride or just chilling out?
1: Uh, probably ride a little bit inside, honestly. It's that time of the year. Um, and you know, you and I both do that quite a bit. Um, but no, it was pretty snowy last week. It was kind of a pain in the butt just getting outside and even walking the dog in the morning. It was colder than usual, I'd say. But um, next week's looking pretty good.
0: All right. Well, let's get back into, let's get into the show for the week. Uh, stoked to have a guest who um, I actually race with online, which is really exciting. Uh, Welcome former pro cyclist or pro outdoor cyclist, uh, Jonathan Frader.
2: Well, thank you for having me, guys.
0: Yeah. Stoked to have you here, man. Um, we're going to get into a lot of different topics, um, but as always, that I, I when I ask all of my guests as first as they come on, is to tell us a little bit about yourself so our listeners can kind of uh, get to know you. Um, where did you grow up and how did you get into the sport of cycling?
2: Uh, so I grew up in Columbus, Ohio, and uh, I've kind of made my way around the country since then. But I grew up with my dad, always working in local bike shops that started out in, uh, in Bike Source, which is big for you guys since that's uh based out in the highlands ranch now it is yeah but yeah it's pretty much growing up hating the tour de france with it being on tv three times a day as he was recording it on the vhs tapes for all his friends and uh going to the local races whenever the family permitted so it's more or less in my blood if i got sick at school i went and hung out in the shop and uh you can imagine how many sick days i had in elementary school for that but uh Yeah, cycling's always been around, and I have a feeling it'll be around until until I can no longer throw my leg over a bike, or I don't know, maybe I'll get a hand cycle at that point.
0: Wow, so yeah, that's kind of uh, interesting. I was in your blood, and uh, I don't think there's many kids out there who took sick days and went to a bicycle shop, you know? Um, So were you working at these shops? You were just kind of hanging around, uh, talking to guys there?
2: Uh, If the Better Business Bureau is listening, I wasn't officially working, but uh, yeah, pretty much. I was pre-building bikes before I could lift them out of the box. So the guys, the other mechanics, would lift the bikes up out of the box, put it in the stand, and I would basically cut off all the zip ties and all the rubber bands and um, get it ready to go before it was on the floor. I think it was probably a good thing that the guys at least looked over the bikes before they went out, but uh, I was happy to help out. And other days, like uh, say we had to – But my sister and I, when we were in the shop, one of the jobs that my dad tended to give us was stickering bicycle tubes. And so you get a box of 500 bicycle tubes coming in from Specialized and uh, someone has to put the price tag on all those. Why not hire your uh, children to do it? We were well compensated in ice cream.
0: Oh, all right. I was going to say, at least you got something in return for it, you know. Um, so when did you get interested in competitive cycling then? Were you just, um, at that point, just kind of riding around for fun or was it always kind of like a serious thing for you even as a kid?
2: I always wanted to do the sports that my dad did growing up. I heard that he played soccer. So I played soccer for nine years until a concussion took me out of that. Um, I tried hockey. I have weak ankles. so I was a terrible skater. So that didn't really work out so well. Um, and cycling was always around. It was... Uh, my dad was coaching a young athlete at the time of Thomas Hanley, and um, and so naturally I wanted to hang out with them and race bikes and be just as cool as they were. And uh, and so like when my dad would go to a local criterium, I would always try to sign up for the kitty race. And uh, whether it was like a two hundred meter sprint, um, I usually wanted to at least try to talk the promoter into doing a full lap. Typically, that didn't fly so well. But uh, it was a lot of fun either way. Honestly, it was just my dad looking back at it and kind of where I've been around the world, whether it's Columbia or Rwanda or Phoenix, Arizona. um, Where I was in Columbus, it's not the best for riding. But because of that era... And that the fact that my dad was doing it. You had a lot of really big names coming through the state of Ohio. Um, Tim Tyler was doing a lot of great things, bringing people from Australia and New Zealand over. Um, you had the Kenda team growing up. Of course, my dad coached guys like Thomas Hanley, who's a former national champ. Um, and really, it was just I wa- I've always had that athletic drive and being that. I looked up to my father, it was kind of like, okay, whether it's going around the neighborhood and I'm going to try and out sprint you, or um, basically I want to just, I want to I wanna make my dad proud, and so I think that's really where it started, and then kind of, as soccer faded away, I picked up skiing a little bit, um, but skiing in Ohio, you can imagine how well that goes over. I mean, it's pretty much a 17-second run down, so... I, You're not going to get too far if your dreams are the Olympics.
1: We have that issue now. Um, Adam and I uh, coach the About Racing Inspired Juniors, and there's a lot of kids on the team that, whether you are younger than nine or nine to 10, you know, 11, 12, you only get to do like maybe half a lap or one lap. It's not fair, right? But for some kids, it's good. They get to do that one lap. And for other kids, it's eh, maybe it's good you only did that. You did a little bit more. well, yeah, I like that because I, I did a little bit with soccer too growing up for a while and then I transitioned to cycling. What attracted you to cycling mostly as a kid? Because you grew up in Ohio. I'm going to assume that's not a cycling powerhouse as say like a Colorado or Arizona would be, right? What made you want to start getting into cycling at, or at least getting into racing?
2: So my mom uh, was a specialist in the blood bank and she had seen my dad crash his bike way too many times as a Cat 3. Um And so she was always a bit fearful for me to go out and really start riding. So in hindsight, it was probably a good thing that for the career that I had, that I started out a little bit later, Um, just because so many riders start out so young and push so hard and burn out so early before they've even matured. Uh, But it really wasn't until maybe the late summer when I was 14 and really 15 when I started racing and uh, I had a good friend that worked with my dad. She was a couple years older than me. And uh, she was incredible talent when she was a teenager. And um, basically, she got me coming out to some of the local clubs. It was, oh, what was it, Central Ohio Bicycle Club presented by Raisin Rack or something like that. But uh, basically, it was once a week group ride on a Wednesday. We would start at Hoover Dam over in Westerville, Ohio, and we'd just go out and go have fun. And that, uh, that was really the first ride that I was allowed to do outside the neighborhood where my father wasn't there. And it just went from there. Um, Brooke, at the time, was racing on Kreitler Rollers, and that was really my first real team. Uh, I think we had a rule during the winter training that you weren't allowed to start a race until you could do a half hour time trial on the Kreitler rollers without falling off.
0: That's a pretty good induction to the to the team, yeah.
2: When you're 15, trying to do an all out half an hour time trial and you're trying to stay on or the big cra- Kreidler drums like four, in- it's uh. So yeah, it was uh. Those days were fun. They were crazy. We would all gather up in Brooks' basement and uh, basically. You'd get a little warm up, and it was all out. And any time that you'd fall off, you just you were kind of disqualified
1: from uh, from that weekend's TT result. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, especially yeah, I mean, especially for skiing. Um, but so when you the the teams you started on, right? You mentioned a couple different places you rode. You threw out the Kenda team. When you started as a junior, did you start racing for your dad's team, and then did you promote into more of an advanced junior elite team? Tell us a little bit about your junior career and some of the teams, and how you progressed?
2: Uh, 17, 18s were good. It was, uh, by the time, was it, I think 17, yeah, I was on the Turner Construction team, which I, if you come up through the junior ranks, everyone's heard of the Hot Tubes team. We Basically, that it was a great group of kids and parents um, from Cincinnati area, which is about two hours from where I live, but that was kind of they were the ones in Ohio going to these junior UCI races, whether it was a bit of B or uh, they would just show up to the the local cat three races and the local spring series and just smash all the, all the old guys at that point. Um, And so that was kind of like, that was the goal and I could see what that the culture could be as a junior cyclist. And that's really why I wanted to go. And then, Once I worked my way onto Turner, um, it was okay. The next goal became to go to a UCI event as a team. And uh, it was always kind of, those guys focused on nationals and stuff a lot more than necessarily a bit of me. But if you're a junior racing in North America, that's, that's the one event you really target. And so I think just going for that. And then I found out through Brooke, actually, since she was a few years ahead of me, that I could get a scholarship to college for riding my bike, and that was basically once the the target for a bit to be was completed. It was okay. Now it's uh, now it's time to prove myself, and I didn't want to go to Columbus State or something like that and live in, live at my parents' place and just uh, go that way. I wanted to get out and explore the world a little bit, and getting a scholarship to ride your bike that's a pretty good way to do it.
0: But so so tell me about your like kind of your attitude and your mentality as a junior. Were you one of those kids who were like, I wanna crush heads, I wanna beat everybody, or were you like, all right, this is cool, this is fun, like let's see what I can do with this, or, or a little bit of both.
2: Uh I don't remember the exact point, but somewhere I think it was probably around the Um that year Lockland Morton absolutely just destroyed all of us. I knew that I could ride well, but I wasn't sure to what capacity that I could ride. Um, and I, I wanted to get to Europe, but was never that, I was never that um, that brash Mark Cavendish type character that was just like, I'm gonna come out and I'm gonna beat all of you because I'm this much better than you. I, uh, I preferred to speak softly and carry a big stick instead. Or as my father said, let my legs do the talking. Uh, just basically just stay quiet and let your legs do the talking.
0: So what kind of uh, rider did you consider yourself back then? Were you, did you think you were a climber, all-arounder?
2: I loved going up hills, but in central Ohio, that probably means you're climbing for a minute, a minute and a half tops, which has been great for uh, the front side of the Watopia KOM um, on Zwift. But, so it's the game that we all we all uh, fancy ourselves, want to be professionals, in, uh, and – I get a jump on my bike in the living room uh, at the kitchen table um, every morning before work instead of going and risking my life out in traffic anymore. Yeah,
1: so you talked about Wattopia. You talked about, Watopia, you talked about um, I did want to, you did talk about like kind of what you're doing now, but let's bring it back a little bit more to when you got a scholarship to go to school for riding. That's essentially almost like you're getting paid to ride your bike in so many words. Tell us a little bit more about. Um, the scholarship, the school you went to, the collegiate team you were on, and ultimately how that started your path down a career as a domestic pro, if you will.
2: So I went to two schools. The first was Lindsay Wilson College in the middle of nowhere, Kentucky. Um, Growing up in suburbs of Columbus, uh, it was uh, a bit of a culture shock going to a town that had two or three stoplights and a Walmart um when people start identifying about what county they live in instead of what town they're from that's uh that's definitely you know you're out there
1: you're in the small town yeah
2: um but yeah so that was a bit of a culture shock but the riding was fantastic like i living in columbus you ride 45 minutes to get out of the suburbs so you're on um some roads that aren't considered neighborhoods and uh and that at Lindsey Wilson, as soon as you left the dorms, you were the countryside was yours to take on, so um, the riding was great. I just unfortunately, there's some places in life that you fit in, and that wasn't one of them for me. Um, but as a scholarship athlete, and between Lindsay Wilson and then when I transferred out to Wood University at the edge of St. Louis um, where I actually met Matt Brandt, one of our draft teammates. Uh, the collegiate cycling programs, when they're varsity sport, it's legit. I had a better setup in college than I did through my Jelly Belly years and um, the partial year at Estellus. You travel to to the races on a tour bus, basically. and uh, I mean, if you crash, the school helps you out with medical care or, whatever it is, it's the legit programs are fantastic. And, uh, if you're, if you're an aspiring athlete and you want to give cycling a try as a career, I definitely firstly recommend that you still pursue an education because it's hard to go anywhere in this world without one. But if you're not looking at collegiate cycling, you better hope that you have a talent that, uh, you can actually impress someone over in Europe, or you're going to get a degree on the side that way. When cycling crumbles, uh, you'll still have a backup plan.
1: Yeah, um, <clears throat> when I was in when I was in college at Wake Forest University, in North Carolina, um, we just started a club team and for cycling, and it wasn't it didn't have the perks of a varsity program, right? We didn't have scholarships, but either way, I will agree with the point that. Um, the university still paid for us for the hotel rooms, for the travel. They did compass for the kits sometimes. And, um, it was fun. And I made some really great friends either right at the university or, you know, within the Atlantic collegiate cycling conference, um, which is a mouthful, right. But, uh, it was just, it was awesome. And some of the collegiate racing was definitely a lot of fun. And we had a lot of people on our team that ended up going to the, the next level um Not necessarily on our our immediate collegiate team, but more in the conference they went to the next level um so you mentioned um what was the, what was the team you joined right out of school
2: so really that that picture is uh you imagine that that I was a junior and then I switched to the college team and then out of college, I went to pro and it was that that sounds great, but in the real world that's not how it works as a junior, I went to a couple local teams. And then from the local teams, um, started my first UCI event, or I guess it wasn't even UCI yet, it was still probably the national calendar racing, um, was Joe Martin. And I absolutely got my face kicked in at Joe Martin, and I don't think I've loved that race since I since then. But um, I went from there, and then I found guest spots for a race at uh, Cascade with the firefighter cycling team. And I had... A decent result i think i was 12th overall um there and i had a good friend ralph Meldoff, who was uh, uh the head mechanic for jelly belly at the time and he got the right eyes on me and basically my last full calendar year in school was my first year on jelly belly and so i was then juggling a business degree i was juggling a being a scholarship athlete on the cycling team at school and being a professional athlete, and my professors didn't exactly appreciate it, and I definitely struggled a little bit trying to finish things off. But it uh, it was an interesting way to transition from being a collegiate athlete to the rest of the world.
0: Um, yeah. Well, first of all, I want to say that's really great that you had a good experience with um, collegiate racing because I did too. It seems like all three of us did. Um, I, I started racing my senior year in college because of some running injuries and, uh, the team was just so freaking awesome. Not only were they super welcoming to a guy who just, you know, barely ever rode a bike. Um, but like they would take me under their wing at races. They would, and they would totally like make fun of me. Uh, in in like a joking way, because I would uh race a crit in my small ring, thinking if I spun faster, I'd go faster. (laughs) You know, uh, and they'd be screaming on like the side of the corner, like get in your big ring, and I didn't even know what the big ring was. But the whole point of that story is, I think it was super cool to have um those those few people like kind of help me in a positive way, like getting onto the bike and and racing and stuff. Um, let's let's get into Jelly Belly. I want to get. I've read books out there. I've read, you know, Phil's book and and heard other stories, but um, nothing beats just sitting here and talking to somebody. Um, Can you give us some ins and outs when you first got on there? What was it like? And and take us through kind of um, your your feelings about the team and stuff.
2: I get goosebumps just thinking about how excited I was when I got the call up um, from Danny Van Hout, the general manager of the team. I think I was in the school cafeteria at Lindenwood, between a couple classes, and I got the call from him basically saying that, hey, you had a good ride at Cascade. Um, we think you have potential. We want you on the team next year. And the legacy that Jelly Belly had already made for themselves in the U.S. domestic pro scene was uh, was enough that I'd, at that moment, my brain shut down. I didn't care what the stipulations, or anything else about the contract, I was in. I was I was on Jelly Belly. I was going to be a pro, and that's all that mattered to me. Um, in hindsight, I definitely wouldn't recommend that to anyone that's uh, going to go sign a contract. You should probably make sure that you can look out for yourself a little bit in the rest of life. But that that pure excitement and holy shit – I'm a professional athlete now. That uh, that was absolutely amazing for for a few months, and uh, and then it kind of really set in what what it meant to be to be a professional cyclist riding for nothing.
0: What do you what do you mean by racing uh, as a professional cyclist for nothing? Yeah.
2: So point blank at Lindenwood and Lindsey Wilson and even other schools like Marion University, um, we're, you're taking. Pretty well, Like the school gives you good care. You still have to eat the same terrible cafeteria food. You're still living in the same crappy dorms. But going to these races, the school's paying for your hotel. Um, You're getting your food covered. If you crash, they're paying for your tagoderm or paying for your x-ray. Later after the fact, you're going to these races in a bus, if not a 15-passenger van. And other than worrying about keeping your grades up and possibly your student loans, there's really nothing to worry about. But when you're on a domestic pro team, if you crash, it doesn't matter if you break your wrist or you just need some tagoderm. um, That's on you. Once the bike is good to go and you can start the next day, really, if you can't do the job, there's someone else that is out there that's going to so they don't have to do anything for you and so that's kind of how you're treated whereas a scholarship athlete you're given a scholarship so you're an investment to them and on the pro team I mean especially that first year I was riding for free I I was just another rider in a jersey um, second year I rode for two thousand dollars and really it wasn't even it wasn't a different. So it's uh, those years were definitely hard and as much as I love cycling, I complimented quitting the sport after every single season just because of the that situation.
0: Tell me tell me aside from the financial part of it, tell me about like your opportunities. Were you able to do what you wanted in races, go to certain races, or was it you're going here, you're doing this?
2: Uh, so, they gave me uh, my first year. I got some leniency being that I was still in school. Um, I don't think I really started racing with the team until probably pro nationals, which, that's uh, that's a big wake-up call to the legs. When you go from the collegiate calendar, it was still, the collegiate season was great. We still had Matt Brandt. We still had Adam Leibovitz, um, probably the strongest that the MWCCCCCCCC has been in years. Um, yeah, it, it, it's a mess. It's kind of like the uh, the new BMC or whatever the they are nowadays. People are joking as it can be C with the Polish guys. But um, yeah, just coming from the collegiate ranks, as high level as that competition is, going from that, to pro nationals racing with the World Tour guys, I mean, there's it doesn't prep you for it. That the speed at which you climb, or um, just taking turns on the front, it's it's brutal. Especially when you have the defending champion and Freddy Rodriguez on your team, and you're uh, you're the domestique controlling the breakaway. It's a hard way to cut your teeth. And then from that to Philly International or Philly cycling classic, whatever it's called nowadays. That had to be at the time the single fastest race I've ever done. And between going up the manu wall and then what is it, three climbs on that course before you just rock it along the bottom? At the speed that those guys go is incomprehensible to a majority of the public. And at that point I still couldn't wrap my legs around it. Um So that was a huge wake-up call, but it was probably late spring, Um, what, 2014 when I started racing really with them, and um, I thought I was good at training camp in March, but when
1: racing came around, that was a whole different topic. Good details there, and there's a lot of questions unpacked there, but those races you mentioned and some of the people you got to race against, was within Jelly Belly, was there like a Here's the A roster, here's the elite group of riders, and here's the B squad, you know, going to go some of the lower level races as they start to get familiar with it. How did you fit into the ranks amongst your Jelly Belly peers? I was definitely, if you had to
2: rank it A and B squad, I was definitely on the B squad. Um, I was 21 at that point, still, or at least somewhat focused on school, um, trying to keep up some sort of social life as well, which I've never really been good at anyway. But you had guys like Freddie Rodriguez and Jacob Rathy and Luis Lemus and Sergey Tatkov. Um, Those guys, they're just absolute. Half the team was they've either raced at World Tour or they deserve to be at World Tour. Um, And so to be learning from their experiences, if there was a race like Philly where someone was busy or someone was at the Mexican national championships or going for their Olympic squad or whatever it was. Um, I usually got a, I got a seat. Um, I think like Utah, I think Utah, I was on the first roster. Um, Colorado was that, I might've been filling in for maybe Kirk Carlson. No, I think I was filling in for uh, Maddie Lloyd. He had had some issues in Utah and was off the bike. And then even um, tour California in 2015, we had a couple guys out, um, mm. both Jacob Brathy and uh, Josh Raspberries, um, Josh Barry. He, uh, I think they were both out with iliac artery things. And so those opened spots up for me. And I was never really favorite on the team and act. To the point, uh, at one point, Freddie Rodriguez came up to me and was kind of like, why is Danny treating you like this? Um, So to the point that my other teammates could see it, that I was definitely not to make fun of James, but treated like a redheaded stepchild.
1: Oh, man. Now everyone knows my hair color. I don't think people knew that before. Thanks for that.
2: (laughs) Really when you're being talked down to because you were never on the national program or whatever it was. Uh, or you're getting a lot of media attention because you have a broken wrist, and uh, they don't understand why. Um, basically, all you can do is you have to respect their authority and their position, even if you don't respect them as a person. And so there was a lot of "yes, sirs" that came out of my mouth. And uh, I think some people started catching on when I started saying "yes, sir" a lot. I was. Uh, I was doing that because that was the nicest thing that could possibly come out of my mouth at that point.
0: Wow. So so that's – yeah, that's pretty messed up, man, um, that you were treated this way. I mean, so what did you do about it? Were you just like – you just kept your mouth shut and just kept riding or
2: – Honestly, I kind of look back and I try to look back with rose-tinted glasses anymore. Um, it's no use to hanging on to the anger um, and – and when you're making $2,000 a year, that's such an insignificant amount. You don't even remember what comes in, what goes out.
0: Were there a lot of other broken promises like contracts, money, um, other stuff? Or was that just kind of all lumped into this whole big mess?
2: <laughs> well, yeah, it's, uh, it was to the point where um, 2015, I, I was fed up with it enough that I was looking at grad school at that point. And uh, I had broken my collarbone at the Littleton Crit. And uh, actually broke my collarbone dislocated both my shoulders in the same crash. And uh, I was just coming off a great block of training after recovering from broken wrists and tour, California. And just, uh, I was really looking forward to the U.S. Pro Challenge. And then the World's TTT was in Richmond that year. And I was hoping to get for, go for a spot on the World's team. But uh The things, I guess, kind of that that whole experience really wrapped up with the broken collarbone and through the grapevine, I heard those talks that they wanted to bring me on for a third year, but I I pretty much laughed those those rumors off, and I actually don't think I ever approached um, Jelly Belly for a third year um, with another contract just because... I was so over the situation that it wasn't worth my life anymore. Um, I think the biggest thanks I ever got was a t-shirt that said crash on it after I broke my collarbone, or sorry, broke my wrist on NBC Sports. They're basically like, here you go, here's a t-shirt. This is the best advertising we've never paid for. Yeah, and then I'm pretty sure I got blamed when we didn't go to Qinghai Lakes afterwards because of my wrist, so... (laughs) It was good times.
0: Oh, I bet, man. It <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> sounds like it. Um, speaking of the Littleton crit, uh, you had, have you done it more than once then? Or did you crash the that same year I saw you there? I've done it twice. Twice, okay.
2: So I did it 2015 with Jelly Belly. That was right after, um, actually one of my favorite races, the Bob Cook Memorial Mount Evans Hill Climb. After that training block, I was, I don't know, and Forty one, one hundred and forty two pounds, and just absolutely skin and bones. But I was flying, um, wow. and getting ready for the big UCI races that wrap up the season, and and it all it all came crashing down oh so fast in the shadows. Um, but that's a fantastic race, and uh, even though crits aren't really my forte anymore, I I would still love to go back and do it another time or two
0: so i still have this like imprint in my brain i know it sounds weird but i rem- i can still remember uh sitting there at a- outside at a bar drinking a beer watching a- at night because uh, for those who don't know the littleton is a twilight crit which are the pro races at night and in the evening they have lights on and everything um and i can still
2: it starts at like nine. yeah something
0: crazy like that right um And, and the whole course is not lit up. I mean, there's just like the corners are, and that's pretty much it. (laughs) So I'm sure it was probably a really interesting experience, but I could still remember sitting there waiting for the Peloton to come through. And all I saw was this dude in a completely blacked out kit and bike, I think. And it looked like a ghost, man. And that was you off the front soloing, right? For a while. So just wanted to mention that. Yeah.
2: Yeah. So I was in a all black, the bio racer speed suit. Um, and that thing was absolutely incredible. But uh I was on the in the all black Bi-Racer speed suit, blacked out eight oh eights, um that I had from a friend that worked at Zip and um and the Argon eighteen Nitrogen Pro that I had from the Jelly Belly days. And uh yeah, just it was it was fun. I think Hollywood or someone joined me early on and then after a couple of the preams they decided it wasn't worth it and after breaking my collarbone there the year before, I didn't really want to. Uh, I didn't really want to sit in the field all that much, so I just kept the pedals turning over and went full go as you saw as you were drinking your beer.
0: <laughs> yeah, dude, it was awesome. I still remember it. I don't know if I'll ever forget it because it was just this eerie sight of this pitch black chorus with this pitch black rider. <laughs> so um, it was just just pretty cool. Um, did you, uh, during during your years, was um, doping widespread still or was it kind of getting to become a thing of the past, at least from from your eyes?
2: Um, I've heard stories of no one that I know on Jelly Belly, um, no one that I know on Astellas. I mean, there was, in college you heard guys having you heard rumors of guys doing stupid things like HGH and stuff like that. And there was a couple of guys that would get really fast for a season. And then as what seemed like in college, they would start smoking pot the next year and slow back down. But um, yeah, you always kind of wondered a couple of guys like that. And there was other stories from former pros that they could be in Italy and their teammates would have stuff in the fridge Uh, But I don't think anything, to my knowledge, nothing ever happened at Jelly Belly and anything like that. So I hope it was, I came into the sport where it was, uh, we were past that, but I I can't say for certain.
1: So uh, we know that Jelly Belly, that team folded early 2018, late 2018, around that time?
2: No, it actually... Just full, uh, yeah wrapped up at the end of the year after what I think nineteen years as a title sponsor in the sport uh I think I'm finally getting down to my last box of sports beans um which I might save that since I'm in the I'm actually on the box, but uh most of that I would give it away, so we'd get uh quarterly shipments of about seventy five pounds worth of uh sample packets and everything else
1: yeah i mean you should you should probably save that um. Just even if you don't eat the last couple, but just hold on to them. But uh, Jelly Belly, as a team, they folded. You were not. Uh, were you a part of the team as it wrapped up in 2018? Um, or were you starting to pursue something else before the team said we're... No, I was
2: uh, I was out of there in 2015. Once... Uh, the way things went with that, I was okay to... Uh, at that time, I felt like th- th- this is a small world but you have to know when it's okay to burn a bridge and i felt like it was okay to to burn that bridge and never look back yeah i definitely i'm trying not to sound too jaded from those experiences but i can't honestly say that i would recommend that my hopefully future children follow in the footsteps of that route it's not the easiest in the world
1: yeah and no. I personally don't have any experience with that. And just judging from what you've told us here on this podcast now, it didn't sound like you had fun. You chased a dream. You had opportunities. Sounds like the best times you did have. And I'm sure there was good times post-college, but were while you were in college with your friends. But um, I did want to touch upon what you're doing now. What are your goals for 2019? You had a great early 20s right what are you looking to do next you have a lot of life to live and you have a lot of talent what's on your radar for the future
2: yeah 27 is coming up fast my uh my significant other she'll hate me for saying this but she turns the big 30 in november and so we're uh we're we're excited what uh what mysteries of life can unravel themselves in front of us sooner than later um riding the bike 20, 30 hours a week to sitting in office for 40 plus hours a week. Um, actually, my hip flexors sitting in the office chair have been killing me this week, especially trying to keep up with you guys on a Zwift, so. But really it's being still 26 and even though I've decided that road cycling isn't for me, I have, I have all that competitive spirit Plus, I probably love the bike more now than I ever have. Um, and so I've set out a lofty goal for myself that I'd kind of thought about after I stopped professional cycling. And I want to target the team pursuit for the Tokyo Olympics. And I think if there is a shot to make the U.S. team for that, it will lie in a good result at elite track nationals this
1: year. Um, you mentioned your significant other. Um, is she a cyclist as well?
2: Yeah. So she uh, she was a collegiate runner. Um, it seems like she was one of the 99% of collegiate runners that get injured and, uh, slowly made her transition to the bike. And, um, I'm pretty sure within the, f- the first couple times we actually met each other, we went on a bike ride and I got left from right mixed up and, uh, gave her a good little body check and she kept it upright. And from there, I, I knew she could handle herself. And, uh, we got her trained up. We, we moved to Colorado and at that point I was still on uh, still a professional cyclist riding for Estelis, And at that point she had the real paycheck and I was the one slacking off in the bike world. And, um, and I mean, she was putting in just as many training hours as I was with a full-time job and putting aside the fact that she's a total workaholic and that, uh, she's an incredible person, the most driven and probably one of the smartest people I've ever met. So, um, yeah, she went from that, and then she started last year out with. Well, she finished. What is it? Twenty nineteen now. So she finished twenty seventeen up with the Hoggins Berman Professional Women's Team. She rode Cascade with them, and then started twenty eighteen with them. And uh, and due to just some personal things, finding out she had Graves' disease um, and stuff like that. Kind of had to step away from the sport to reevaluate life, um, but yeah, she's an incredible talent, and you can't have, you can't be a scholarship collegiate runner and then later in life a professional cyclist without having a natural ability. So it's um even though she'll hate me for saying that, she's a natural athlete, and she's put a lot of hard work in to get her where she was. But, um, yeah, it's, it's true. She's on and off the bike. She's a credible woman.
1: Yeah. I mean, you definitely answered my question of, is she a cyclist? So of course she's a cyclist given the team that she's on. And it sounds like she's wonderful off the bike too. I'm going to, you mentioned a bit about track cycling. Um, did she kind of push you into track cycling as your next foray? And you mentioned Tokyo 2020, um, what got you thinking that track cycling is where you want to be?
2: So I uh, actually through college, you had collegiate track nationals. Basically, that was the entire track calendar uh, or track season, um, and I always enjoyed that. It's uh, I uh, collegiate cycling there tends to be a couple more spills, and I tended to find the ground and uh, at track nationals more often than not. But it didn't mean that I didn't love it and. Um, and when Estelis was absolutely collapsing in every single direction, I thought about, hey, this I still have the competitive spirit. I still have the ability. Maybe I'll go on the track. And so in 2016, I thought about it and we were living in Niwot, Colorado, just maybe 15 minutes down the road from the track in Erie. And so it, I gave it a crack. I, uh, I had some fun um played around with some of their local racing but it just i had to uh i had to get out my own way and figure out my way in life first and the timing wasn't quite right and at that point usa cycling was doing a bunch for the women but they hadn't i don't think they had really looked towards the guys yet um but now things have changed usa cycling's putting actually some massive effort into the guys they just wrapped up uh their second consecutive World Cup in New Zealand and Hong Kong, and I think they just they just get the silver medal for the team pursuit. So obviously we have the talent, um, the effort's going into it, and being that I still have that competitive spirit, I think that's the best thing that I can do at this point. When I don't have the drive for the road anymore, and it's working 40-plus hours a week in the office, it's, uh, I just wish there was a track closer than six hours to me.
0: Well, move back to Colorado, dude, and you'll have two, you know. <laughs> but
2: yeah, uh, trust me, we would both love to move to Colorado. Um,
0: I hear you. No, I hear you. Um, we can't. We can't be on this podcast and not talk about Zwift. Um, so I gotta know. Like, was it was it Matt um, Brandt who first kind of introduced you to Swift, or when did you first hear about it, and what were your kind of first initial thoughts about it?
2: I have no idea how I first heard about it. It was probably my dad, to be honest. He knows almost everything there is to know about cycling um it's kind of funny and in, in some regard but um i think it was probably fall of 2017 or so just during the winter whether you're in colorado or ohio wherever i was in life um it's cold so and i grew up hating the trainer workouts i absolutely dreaded them i would rather skip a workout and lie to my coach than to do a trainer workout as a seventeen-year-old kid, um, which I'm sure you absolutely enjoy when your athletes do that.
0: Uh, yeah, all the time. <laughs> but nowadays with Strava and everything, like I know if kids doing something or not usually. So you know.
2: But yeah, and it's it's a lot of fun. It started out um, basically I would see some of my former teammates or riders that had replaced me on Jelly Belly, and if they would have a KOM, I would set out to go steal their KOM, and just kind of, I don't want to say have a dick measuring contest, but just uh, put a little bit of the ego back that I used to have um, when I was no longer a professional and whatnot, and then next thing I know, I've uh, decided to kind of hang up the racing shoes and go in the real world, and when Tara and I had left Rwanda, we still had plane tickets that we had to use, so we decided to do a three-week cycling trip through France and Italy, and um, and basically I'd, I'd been spending a lot of time in the office and very little time on the bike, and I was like, okay, it's 120 degrees outside in the Phoenix summer, I have to get riding, how can I do this? And uh, started using a 20-year-old Cyclops fluid trainer that I had stolen from my dad, um, riding Zwift and then start saw that Matt was on there and started racing with you guys. And uh, at first, I was kind of hesitant to ask to join Team Draft just because I didn't want to be like, I didn't want to follow Matt around. I didn't want to be his little shadow. Um, but thankfully, it wasn't perceived as that. And I started racing with Draft. And I went from just riding on Zwift to have a little bit of fitness so I could hang with Tara as we rode through Europe to um, frankly, I've seen some of the best power numbers that I've ever seen in my life, which has been one of the reasons why I've brought up those track goals is because racing with you guys, um, whether I'm giving you a lead out or trying to drop them going up one of the climbs, uh, it's been absolutely fantastic. And I've never been more motivated to ride a trainer In my life not only that um, I think it was 2016 no I don't know it's a few years ago I'm getting old my memory's going bad but uh, Tara was hit by a car when she was training in Boulder and even though she's she was the one that had all the physical and mental injuries from that it's uh, between her and seeing so many of my friends uh, get hit or killed while riding when I'm on Zwift, I know that when my ride's over, I'll always be home and I'll always be safe. So that's, uh, that's been a big determining factor for me as well.
0: What's uh, like one of your favorite either courses or races to do um, on Zwift?
2: Uh, going into Europe, I love the Alpe du Zwift because I was, I was fully ready for it. I was going to take on the real Alpe d'Huez and I was going to thrash it. But as I focused on my track goals... Just under 40 minute effort, that's brutal now. it's uh, it, I don't know what I was thinking back then. I think really some of my favorite hills are, uh, or the courses are in London going through, like going up Box Hill, for instance, or the Richmond course. Richmond's, it's, it's interesting because it's very limited uh, availability from the user aspect. But the three little punchy climbs, they're all around a minute each. And those will just all shred your legs before you even know it. And for some reason, the that kind of five-minute effort going up Box Hill, that's always been a sweet spot for me. Um, and that seems to be kind of the area where I know I can crack a lot of people. You're doing a high enough power that it really hurts, and you honestly just want to cut your legs off and fall off the bike. But I can always seem to... Uh, just outsuffer most people a little bit more than what they can put themselves there.
0: Last, uh, last thing I wanted to ask you about Zwift. So with, with your being a, a former professional cyclist, now having these these really cool track goals and doing a lot or the majority of your training on Zwift, would you say that that Zwift is, is definitely helping you to get towards those goals? I'm not trying to sound like an ad. I'm trying to just figure out as someone who's raced and trained out on the roads as a pro – like, would you say for someone out there, like, like, listen, you can actually get legit training on here and do
2: in real life goals as well? You know? uh, one, I'll say this is not an ad being that I'm paying for Zwift every month. Um, but, I mean, if they want to pay me, it can be an ad, but we'll have to talk about that later. Um,
0: <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> I'm just more curious on your take overall on, like, um, using Zwift as an actual training tool for, for something like you're doing, like the track now, you know?
2: yeah, to be honest, between my comfort level on the road, um pretty much the only time I ride outside is when I ride with Tara because she she's not on the Zwift train yet. Um, but it's obviously, you still in the real world have to learn how to know how to ride your bike. Um, I think a lot of people really lack in that area nowadays, but as far as putting out the power and the aerobic ability, and all that training, it, absolutely you can get it on Zwift. The level of competition is so high. And, uh, like, there's a, a group on Facebook for Zwift transparency to basically prove that you're a legit athlete. So even though there is some riders that they're probably punching above their weight, so to speak, uh, the level of competition that Zwift offers is fantastic it's not only motivating but it's probably got my 20 basically from my 15 second power to my 20 minute power high higher than it's ever been i wish uh when i was being dropped by mark cavendish going up mount baldy in tour california i could put out the numbers i do now
1: yeah it swift racing you mentioned the richmond course you mentioned fox hill or fox hill rather Um I hate all those. Those are so hard. I can't. Anytime I race on there, it is I just get dropped backwards. But hey, I think that's me. I don't think that's the course. Um, Jonathan, one last question I have for you, and we're gonna take the virtual world out of it. But your favorite race you've ever done in real life?
2: Oh, Go. favorite race? That's hard. There's around this country. There's so many great races. Um,
1: you can give me whatever answer you think is appropriate. And,
2: uh, can I give you like a two or three way tie? We'll see what we like the best. Okay. Top three. So top stage race, Cascade cycling classic. Um, that one's near dear to me. I've, I've had, uh, just like any other professional race, I've had a bit of a roller coaster there. Started off guest riding as a nobody. I mean, I'm still a nobody. I'm a little bit more of a hack nowadays, but, um, Start off guest riding, twelfth overall. Got my first pro contract. That was an amazing experience. Probably the the peak of my cycling fun and out in the real world, as far as racing goes. Um, one day, kind of crit courses, something that's really near and dear to me is the Tour de Grandview. Um, it's maybe fifteen minutes from the condo that I grew up in, and. It's a 1.1 mile course and you're either climbing or descending the whole time. And uh, back when I was a kid, it used to be on the NRC calendar or national race calendar. And I think it was under like Frigidaire Classic or Wendy's Classic or something like that. But that course is brutal. Unfortunately, they run it on a flatter course that's more uh, more friendly to the general public nowadays. But if there was a single one-day race, it would have to be... The Tour de Grand View on the hill course. Um, and then a special mention goes to Snake Alley. I started doing Snake Alley when I think I was 17. Um, and that, if you've never done it before, you get called up to the start line and order registration. And then basically it's a, I don't know, 200, two, 300 meter sprint to the first corner. And then For the next two blocks, the first block, you go up this, I don't know, it's like 13% concrete ramp. And then you cross over a flat little road. And then you funnel down into this little tiny one one lane horse road where all the bricks are angled up against the hill. And it just snakes up the hill. I think the whole thing is an average of 13%. But if you guys don't know what the Snake Alley Criterium is, you have to go look it up. It's absolutely brutal. And I think the pro race is only 20 laps, which comes out to be like 40 minutes.
0: Wow, that's crazy. Yeah, I've seen photos.
2: But that... uh, This
0: is that hard, huh?
2: Yeah, it's absolutely... I mean, I just said that, but it's insane. And it's a lot of fun. And um, Mm. everyone comes out on the Snake during the races and... Over the years I've seen people bring couches out and put them in between the switchbacks and uh, I think there's one to there's maybe like half dozen switchbacks going up the bricks. and so you whittle basically down from a hundred riders to there's usually a lead group of two or three um, and it's just such a war of attrition but it's it's an amazing race that everybody should experience. No, if they have the availability to get to it over Memorial Day weekend.
0: Sweet. Yeah, that's on my list. And then the um, the one at the college. Oh, man, I'm totally drawing a blank here. Um, oh, Tulsa Tough, I think. That one where they're all like screaming at you as you're going up the uh, hill. That one looks pretty brutal too. Yeah.
2: Oh, Cry Baby Hill. Yeah, so imagine Cry Baby Hill, but you're doing it on a brick road that snakes up the climb instead of getting a straight shot.
0: Well listen man. uh, it's been fun uh having you on and and finally uh chatting it up a little bit. um appreciate your your insight to like your pro racing and and everything like that. um so thanks thanks again for coming on, man.
2: uh thank you for having me and i uh as we were kind of skipping over some of the things i uh I would wanted to give a shout out to a few more people um that basically made all this happen for me. Uh, I kind of missed those. But for all the swan years, all the team mechanics, all my friends, industry insiders, everybody, um, I couldn't have made it where I was or be setting the goals I currently have without your support. So I don't have the, the time. Or we don't have the time that I can list them all off right now. But if you're listening to this, you know who you are and thank you. And please keep giving back to the sport. Um, I tried to do it. A little bit with uh, coaching the Team Rwanda guys. Unfortunately, that didn't work out so well. But uh, really, without all the support that you guys have given me, I wouldn't have been able to do a fraction of what I have. Um, so I look forward to taking up my role someday and really giving back to the sport as you have done for me. So thank you again.
0: Sweet, man. Yeah, that's really awesome. Uh, it's really glad to know people reached out and put their put their neck out for you for sure. You know. Um, Cool. All right. Well, thanks again, man. And uh, best of luck in 2019. Looking forward to uh, seeing what you do on the track.
2: Well, thank you guys. And uh, I'll see you on Zwift in the next couple days or so.
0: All right, everyone, that'll do it for this edition of the Echelon podcast. As always, you can find all of our podcasts on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Facebook. Questions or comments about the show, get in touch at theechelonpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for tuning in and until next time.